When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Wuru, your host. So happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk, of course, about the remarkable NBA Finals and was thrilled to be able to have a conversation with Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite guests. And so we talked for about an hour, mostly about the Finals. We do talk a little bit at, towards the end about the offseason. And for those of you who want timestamps, those will be in the description, though, for something like this, timestamps are a little bit different because the conversation does kind of go back and forth on a lot of this stuff. But I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. What a finals, huh? Yeah, it was really amazing. And, and there are a lot of different things to unpack with it. And I, I guess one of the things to start with is just, obviously, it's a bit of both. And I don't mean this to denigrate either team. But to a point, it's, did the Cavs win the series? Did the Warriors lose the series? Or some combination of both. Well, I thought it was pretty interesting because Steve Kerr came out after Game 7 and he said they were the better team. They deserved to win, you know, speaking about the Cavaliers. And I kind of wondered when I was hearing him say that, just the way that he said it, I kind of wondered if the implicit message there was that the Warriors deserved to lose, you know, in his view. And I definitely thought, given that they had the 3-1 lead, given that the Draymond Green suspension was basically self-inflicted and totally needless, given that everybody seemed to agree that that was the turning point of the series, and given that Steph Curry just basically didn't show up for the finals, um, you know, I, I tend to put a pretty big percentage of the overall blame credit, uh, you know, pendulum. I, I, I tend to swing, you know, pretty far towards Golden State. Now, obviously, a lot of things had to go right for them to still lose in seven, and so you, you give Cleveland their share of the credit too. But I, I would tend to go maybe sixty forty towards Golden State losing versus Cleveland winning. Yeah, I had I struggled with that with the pieces I, I wrote after the series. And the way I kind of think about it, and this isn't really a percentage, is that Golden State left a, left a crack and the Cavs opened the door and went through it. And if LeBron James in particular, I mean, both LeBron and Kyrie had fabulous Game 5s. But if LeBron hadn't been what he was for those last three games, despite the Warriors' struggles, Cleveland would not have won the series. 
Totally. This is the most haunting loss that I can remember. I mean, it's right there with the Spurs, you know, game six, game seven of that series. It may be worse just because they were up 3-1. But even if you just parse, like, game seven, I mean, there's so many ifs. Like, you know, if LeBron doesn't chase down Iguodala, so that layup goes in and now Golden State's playing from up two down the stretch. If Clay happens to hit a few of those potential knockout threes that he had earlier in the game, if Steph even just plays a B or a B-plus game in game seven, Azili and Barnes, if just one of those two guys shows up for Game 7. I mean, there's so many different ways that Golden State still could have stolen this series, uh, even if you just look at Game 7, which makes it all the more remarkable uh, that Cleveland did it. And you could also say, you know, if Kyrie doesn't get lucky and hit that three, if Kyrie doesn't show up and play basically the best, most reliable stretch of basketball of his career for, you know, 10 days straight there in the finals, if LeBron doesn't put 41 up in back-to-back games and follow that up with a triple-double, you know, if they don't change the schedule so there's extra rest days so LeBron kind of has that recovery advantage that he hasn't had in previous years. I mean, there's so many different things you could point to if you're Golden State, which is why I think it's just agonizing for them. You know, the person I kept thinking about afterwards, honestly, was Jerry West because he's sort of the guy we always associate with like dwelling on losses for decades afterwards, and I kind of felt like every single person in that organization is going to be hit with the Jerry West curse over this one. Yeah, it's definitely possible, and I think in some ways it will linger with Curry, but depending on how hurt he actually is, that might shift. But for me, the person who should have the most sleepless nights, and I honestly think who deserves it, is Steve Kerr. And the reason for that, I, I wrote a tirade about this for The Athletic, is because he is so conserv he's so conservative in terms of his mentality towards his rotations and you know keeping his guys happy and really the only time he ever stepped away from that was when they got down in the finals last year this year he he basically refused to go to that except for when they had to and i think while that wasn't you know there are all these things that could have swung the series i think that is one that did it as well Oh, for sure. Well, when you look at his most unforgivable decisions in Game 7, what's number one for you? And the reason why I ask is because it seems like there's multiple candidates, right? There are a couple of them. For me, it's Verjao in the third quarter because what happened in the first half was that the Warriors played all right when Azili was in. I mean, I thought they underperformed, but they were still fine. And Verja was an absolute disaster, and the team played like a disaster when he was out there. And so, so you have that as the backstory. And then the fact that I've covered this team, that Verja did not play well when he was on the Warriors. He was on the court for some successful <laughs> moments, but he did not play well. And so you have that. To put it, so you, to put it, to put it nicely. Yeah, to put it nicely. And so, so you have that. And then you have in, in the other part, which is that you didn't have to play him. You know, this wasn't a circumstance where there were guys that were in foul trouble or where guys were fatigued, and so he was in there because somebody needed the rest and he had to give it to him. The Warriors did not go to a Draymond Green at center lineup until it was either three or four minutes left in the third quarter. And they did really well with that grouping in the first half. They've done well with it basically the last two years. And instead of when Zeely was in there, they took a seven-point lead and it was and Cleveland erased it. Then... That was when they pulled Azili, put in Verjao. It went from a tie to a six-point deficit. If even one of those two steps is removed, I think they have a little bit of a lead, and Cleveland probably forces their offense a little bit more. I mean, granted, Cleveland didn't even, Cleveland only scored one basket in the last five minutes of the game. And 
part of that, the one basket they scored in the last five minutes of the game was LeBron on Festus Azili, who should not be coming <laughs> in the fourth quarter. Yeah, that was that's what I was going to say was another strong candidate, right, was Festus late because they go scoreless almost the final five minutes, right? Not quite, but pretty close. And, you know, he makes the, you know, multiple defensive errors or, you know, the, the one glaring one on the foul, but then just in general, uh, you know, the other one too. I mean, that's really tough, and I didn't see it coming. I mean, I was borderline shocked when he put Festus in at the end. I guess his his reasoning was they weren't hitting three, so he just wanted to shore up the inside for rebounding and defense. Was that it? That was his rationale, but what I'm amazed that he got counterpunched on this is that last year in particular, the Warriors were absolutely ruthless about capitalizing on advantages that the other team had. And this year, throughout the playoffs, the Warriors were more reactionary than proactive. That included attacking Kevin Love differently throughout this series, going to the small lineups and things like that. And so for him to not anticipate, I was sitting next to my frequent podcast partner, Nate Duncan, and at the same time, we both basically said, oh, they're just going to run Festus through pick and roll the entire time he's in. Because whatever they were going to get with that was a better result than they were going to do with Draymond at center. And what they ended up getting on that second, the second play, which was the three-pointer, they ended up running two screens back-to-back just because they knew that it worked and they knew he was going to get an open shot. That led to the LeBron three, which was their only make. I think there was like five minutes left or something at that point. That was their only points until Kyrie's three with 53 seconds to go. And it was completely not a surprise. So when he talked about his rim protection, it's like, oh yeah, if you ignored the other thing, it's kind of like when somebody makes a move in chess and they don't realize that there's like an alternate strategy that they're leaving themselves open to. And so it's like their primary objective is it will accomplish that, but it leaves their flank open and they, and you know that the other side's going to attack it. Yeah. He got countered pretty hard. Well, of, of all the things that I didn't see happening in this series, like on some of these matchups, like you know, Kyrie beating Steph and Ty Lue basically beating Steve Kerr, I would have bet almost any amount of money that both of those matchups would have gone the other way entering the series, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I mean, even the fact that he rolled the dice with Kevin Love defensively and it worked twice. Amazing. Like, people are talking about the one, which is the most important one, but I mean, Love did a decent job on the other kind of Warriors possession as well when, when Curry had, like, it, it was really impressive. Like, he did a, a nice job. It was a dangerous bet, but... What inspired me a little bit with Lou, that I was concerned when he overplayed his guys in that, uh, I think it was game four, when they just kind of lost it at the end, but when he made the adjustment to putting Richard Jefferson on Sean Livingston, and Kerr just never countered it, I I, I kept that in the back of my mind and said, that's really interesting. Because nobody really did that against the Warriors last year. You know, made a counter, had it work. And then it never really got attacked. And so Sean Livingston eventually started, you know, just shooting over Richard Jefferson anyway. But that's not a, that's not a fix to the problem. Yeah, one thing with Richard Jefferson, you know, everyone is pointing to, like, the, the Draymond suspension as the turning point of the series. I mean, should we go back and look at the Kevin Love concussion maybe as the real turning point of the series? Because the first game without him, it seemed like, I'm not totally sure. I, I agree with the people who said, oh, they would have won with him or without him on that night. I kind of feel like they caught magic in the bottle that first game without him. Jefferson plugged in and just fit so perfectly. They had, you know, it was just all based on sort of rhythm and momentum and, you know, a surge of energy. I and mean, it was all the stuff that was like non-analytical stuff. And that's what kind of did it for him. And I almost wonder, you know, if he if he starts and struggles in that game, Golden State wins it, you know, maybe we, we're not here at this point. I think that's a really good point. And 
it also ties in with the idea of that that when Kerr was unwilling to adjust to that, allowed them to get these advantages at the starts of of quarters and more specifically at the starts of halves that a lot of times the Warriors spent parts of the rest of the game overcoming. They did overcome that in game four, but really the rest of the time, I mean, that was one of the things with this series is that throughout the Warriors, the basically the best they did in the, after the first two games with the starting fives, whatever alignments those were, was hold even. You know, they held even with Azili in game seven. I think there was one other game where they held it pretty much even, but most of the time they got run off the court. And totally. A lot of that to me, though, that goes back to Curry, too. And I know we want to give him a pass a little bit for the injuries or whatever, but I do think part of their struggles early was just that Curry was never right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the only game where they were kind of, you know, looking a little bit better and able to withstand that early stuff was game four, because that was, I thought, the only really good game that Curry played yeah, that, in the whole series. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And Something that I've talked with a couple of people about, and I, I think is is a very good point, and I, w- I would credit them if I thought they wanted credit in terms of just naming them publicly, but one of the big problems with this Warriors team is that they had this incredible player, you know, a unanimous MVP, deserved all the kind of stuff, and he covered up for so many Im- imperfections with this team, and Good teams can survive imperfections all the time. You know, LeBron's first Cavs finals team is another great example of that. Like, that that kind of thing happens all the time. It even happens with champions. I mean, the Miami Heat teams that LeBron helped lead to a title had some serious flaws, too, that they were able to overcome because they had three of the best guys in the league. So the Warriors basically were able to survive with some of their bad habits. They cleaned out some of the ones from Mark Jackson, most notably their attitude towards bad shots, though those reared their head again in the finals as well with Harrison Barnes and Clay Thompson. But other things like how they just had some terrible turnovers and every once in a while they just lose it in transition defense, like those were things. And I actually, what something that resonated with me was at the, I guess it's called like the exit interviews, the post the post-finals thing. Draymond Green talked about how you think about things differently after a loss than after a win. And if you are a Warriors fan, I would take some solace in the possibility, and I would maybe even say likelihood, that when when this group of individuals, individually and collectively, looks at the film, they're going to realize how much kind of easy stuff they left on the court, that if they had just cleaned that stuff up, they still would have won the title despite Steph not being Steph. Yeah, and I think that the other thing they can take away is is that if Steph was Steph, then they win this series handily. You know, I think if Steph was Steph in Game Five, they win Game Five even without Draymond. I thought there was a huge opportunity late in Game Five for sort of Steph to play the emotional leader to say, "Hey guys, uh, you know, after the Bogut injury, especially everybody, just jump on my back. I'm going to take us home." Right? I mean, that's sort of the. Uh, you know, the Hollywood ending, uh, you know, superstar unanimous MVP, you know, delivers for his guys. He just wasn't able to do it. And then again in Game 7, it almost felt like you know, he's waiting for Clay to save him again a, a little bit like, you know, Clay saves him in, in the Western Conference Finals Game 6. And for whatever reason, he just wasn't able to do it. And that doesn't take anything away from Cleveland. But I think everyone in the Golden State locker room should look at this. I mean, I mentioned it should haunt them. I definitely think it's going to haunt them. But at the same time, if you're looking more specifically towards next year, I, mean, I think every single person who's in the core group of those guys has got to think our best is still better than everybody else's best. If Steph's right, you know, we're, we're back-to-back champions. And, yeah, the fact that they were so close even without that, I mean, Draymond Green played a fabulous Game 7, which made me think about Game 5 also. While 
it's hard to argue considering how well LeBron and Kyrie play. You're, it is a it is an amazingly big counterfactual. But the way I described it at the time was that I thought Draymond being out turned the Warriors from being a 70% favorite to being a 40% underdog. So basically him being out was a 30% swing in that game. And that was a completely self-inflicted wound. That, totally, totally. And, and, and that's why I think it should haunt them. Because, I mean, you look at that, the circumstances around that uh, suspension, and he put it on his own shoulders. He knows it. I mean, if there was ever a situation where, like, these guys felt they got job by the league office, like, you know, a suspension in the middle of the finals over a non-punch would be it. But I think he re- he had to realize, like, it was his own behavior who cost him. And I think that's why he took the blame. I would actually even go further. I mean, I, I would have put them at 85 to 90 to win game five with Draymond. The reason I go so high is because LeBron, after game four, uh, he looked desperate. He looked like he was out of basketball answers, and he looked like he had lost his shot, right? Like, they, he wanted to go back tied 2-2 to, to kind of extend the series by themselves more time. He understands the history as well as anybody about the 3-1 hole. Nobody's ever done it in the finals. I mean, he gets that stuff just like, you know, as basketball nerds get it. And I think that the Draymond uh, injury not just opened things up for LeBron and Kyrie to have the big game five, you know, combined for 82 points. But it also really gave them hope. You know, I think that was a team that potentially not lay an egg, but I think they could have been in a situation where they lost game five in, you know, fairly blowout fashion just because, you know, their best shot was game four and they had lost it. They had squandered it. And so to me, you know, the Draymond thing was just gigantic. And I do see that as a turning point. I think the Kevin Love one's a little bit of an underrated turning point. I think the Andrew Bogut injury is a little bit of an underrated turning point too because it stretched Kerr's uh, depth a little bit and opened up more minutes for these guys you're talking about uh you know being real difficult to play but you know certainly when you're circling like the number one issue i mean it was the self-inflicted suspension no question about it and talking about when you were talking about curry i thought that led into something that has been really remarkable in lebron's career which is that he's never had those issues lebron is somebody who has an absolutely immense amount of miles on his tires for somebody his age you know turned 31 this year or turned technically late last year turned 31 this season and for him to have played, I believe it's 199 postseason games, and have never right. missed one due to injury. He did miss that that part of that game against the Spurs due to cramping, which is, I think, a very different thing. But that is that is an achievement in and of itself. For sure. I mean, I dug that I dug that stat up actually a couple of months ago that he never missed a game for any reason in the playoffs. Actually, it was right when Curry, I think, went down with the knee injury uh, when we found out that he was going to miss a couple of weeks. I was going through LeBron's game logs, and I found that. And then I started looking at his minutes averages, and it's like 42 or 43 per game in the postseason. And you just think, what are the odds of a normal human being or, you know, anyone, a normal NBA player being able to log 42, 43 minutes for that many straight postseason games and never having an issue just year after year after year after year. Uh, And that's why I think somebody in his position feels like he gets taken for granted. Uh, I think he made a comment like that in the piece that Lee Jenkins Road, and I know he's kind of said that, or people around him have said that uh, earlier in the year, uh, just like, don't overlook him. Like, don't be so quick to kind of push him, you know, past his prime. And maybe there has been slight physical decline. Yes, the jumper's been, like, pretty shaky, and we've all commented on that a million times, especially over this past season. But, man, this guy is rock solid. He's consistent. He's there every single night. And that's why I thought he should have been the Finals MVP win or lose in Game 7. I felt that way after Game 5. I definitely felt that way after Game 6. And he just presents problems still, you know, at this point of his career, more problems and more different types of problems than any other player in the NBA does, including Steph, uh, and including Steph at 100%. 
LeBron is a truly incredible player, and it frustrates me that so much of his legacy, quote-unquote, is about championships when I, I, I see it very differently. I actually wrote a piece a long time ago, which actually, it was funny, a lot of people thought it was about LeBron. It was actually more throwing shade at Kobe. And it was about the idea of how your team performs relative to their talent level, to me, is a far greater indication of greatness than how many championships your team wins. And so I will litigate this now in the sense that while Kobe was certainly an integral part of the first three championships that the Lakers won, that, to me, as a Kobe accomplishment, is substantially less than something like, obviously it's a different number of years, LeBron carrying that horrible Cleveland team to the finals where they completely reached beyond their talent level. They punched over their weight and did that because if you perform to seed, that's certainly good. I'm never going to denigrate that, but doing better than you should. And that's really not necessarily this year because they stayed healthier, but I think that's the story of LeBron's tenure in Cleveland for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you got a lot of things going on, but I think number one, just to put Kobe aside for a second, when we talk about this title for LeBron, there's a couple of reasons why it's going to resonate, right? Number one, the Cleveland factor is snapping the curse. Uh, number two, the upset factor, like you're saying, I mean, is overperforming his seed by a lot, beating a 73-win team, you know, even if Steph's not at 100%. I mean, that was, you know, a big-time upset. But I also think, you know, another reason why it's going to resonate, and this is less to do with numbers and less to do with anything else, is that I think he finally captured the emotions of the common fan, right? And I think part of that happens to be the fact that he gets cast as the underdog against the, the Warriors, uh, who are sort of this invincible force, you know, coming into the postseason. But they weren't really the underdogs in Miami. And in fact, they were kind of hated to a, a large degree. You know, the Hollywood is hell heat, the Heatles, the resentment over them forming the super team. And even though he kind of has formed his own super team in Cleveland, uh, it just wasn't as good as Golden State's. And it kind of put them in a situation where, they were just able to stay, you know, pretty disciplined and level-headed, even when they got down 2-0 in the series, even when they got down 3-1 in the series. And that made it really easy for casual fans to kind of rally around his greatness, but also just his mental resolve. I mean, people like to see uh, competitors you know, staying level-headed under extreme stress. I mean, it's an easy thing to you know, latch onto because you can kind of see it. It's happening right in front of you. These guys aren't cracking. They're not choking. And, and quite the opposite. I mean, they're rising to the occasion, right? So I think not only him, but also Kyrie, too. I think he, he goes into this category. But everything with LeBron's on a kind of a higher level. I think that this is going to be by far his most remembered title uh, without question because he's kind of crossing. He's, he's getting emotional crossover that he's never had before. And another big difference, as another thing that it, se it seems small but I think does matter, is that the seminal moment, particularly in 2013, doesn't involve him. True. Very true. Like, there were two players that were notable on the Heat in that play, and they're Chris Bosh and Ray Allen. And yep. so while LeBron was the best player in that series and was the deserving MVP, he didn't have the moment that he did with the chase down block or just basically any moment consider in the last two games, considering he was by far Cleveland's best player. Well, yeah, not only did he not have the moment, but remember on the, the sequence to kind of set up the Ray Allen three, he was the one who, like, badly missed the first one, right? Yeah, like, allowed Chris Bosh to get the rebound. Yeah, he, like, completely forced a shot, and it's like it wasn't even close. And it's like, God, LeBron, you really got bailed out there. I do think the other kind of memorable moment I think that's going to stick with people, because the chase down block, of course, is just incredible. Uh, but I think the symbolic moment that people are going to remember is LeBron swatting Steph in game six and just kind of like the older brother treatment, the not in my house, 
the, hey, this is still my league, just the kind of symbolism around that play. It wasn't necessarily as important or as critical uh, as the Iguodala block. And I think the Iguodala block is going to be one that you're going to start to see, like, you know, Jordan's double-clutch lefty layup or the shrug. I mean, that's going to be the kind of play that gets just repeated ad nauseum for the next 40 years on every highlight reel of finals highlights. So uh, what, what was your angle on that? Because I was kind of high and on the opposite side, so I saw it kind of happening in slow motion. It's like, oh, and then and then a part of the play that is lost in the shuffle is that if Iguodala had gone straight up, LeBron just didn't have the time to get there. Yeah, so I was um, basically on in the end zone, on the far end zone, right, just to, towards the left of the hoop. So I was sitting next to Lee Jenkins, uh, which was completely fortuitous for me because, you know, he's sort of the LeBron chronicler, and he's all over. He was already working on his, you know, post-game story by that point. And so we really kind of dissected that play in pretty careful detail, like, immediately afterwards. But I just remember, you know, kind of turning to him after he blocked the shot and as they were kind of bringing the ball up the other direction and just saying, that is an unbelievable play. And he just kind of shook his head like, you know, as if, did we just watch that? And we were kind of waiting for the TV replays to come back. You know, of course, trying to say, was it a goaltend? Was there going to be any kind of controversy with that? But I saw him tracking it from half court or even before he got to half court. And I had a sense, you know, basically when he crossed that half court line that he was going to get it. It was just one of those weird kind of sixth sense feelings, like uh, spider sense, whatever you want to call it. But boy, did he do it in spectacular fashion. And I actually thought in terms of a two-on-one fast break, like the Golden State Warriors ran a pretty good fast break there. You know, Steph hits him with the bounce pass. He catches it basically, uh, you know, full speed. Uh, he kind of is maneuvering around J.R. Smith, but he had a seam to the basket. And basically none of that mattered because LeBron erased it. Yeah, and LeBron deserves, of course, a lot of credit for it. Something, having covered the Warriors this year, that is notable. Well, a couple of things about that play. One is that the reason Iguodala kind of stutter-stepped and all that is because he's very uncomfortable shooting free throws, and like Bogut, it has affected the way he plays the rest of his game. I, that's my theory of what of why he bought the time. But, of course, that doesn't matter. LeBron made the play. You know, the play is what happened. But two things that are incredible to me about it. One, it totally took the air out of the building. And yep. why that is so amazing is that the game was still tied, and the Cavs did not score on the ensuing possession. <laughs> totally. But it still I took the air out of the building. I agree with you. And, you know, honestly, up until that exact moment, the crowd to me seemed weirdly confident. Like, I got to the arena expecting true nerves, and maybe that's just because I've seen so many games in the Moda Center up in Portland where they're always kind of expecting the other shoe to drop. Or maybe it's because I see a lot of Clippers home games where they're definitely always expecting something to go wrong. But when I got there to Game 7, people had all these signs of LeBron crying. They had all these, you know, like, go step signs. Like, there was, like, a pretty jubilant atmosphere. It wasn't quite the same party atmosphere as Game 5, but... I think you probably agree with me. I mean, they everybody there expected to win, right? They thought they were going home as titleists. It wasn't like, oh, we're about to blow this finals. And I felt that way. I mean, clearly the nerves started building uh, sort of collectively during the second half because it was just back and forth and so close and so unpredictable. But I still thought the crowd believed they were going to win that championship until that block. And then it was like, holy crap, this might actually go the other way. And then, when obviously, when Kyrie hits the three-pointer, it's like, wait a minute, this like wasn't the script at all, and everybody kind of collectively panicked at that point. Yeah, then it became like, oh, this isn't our movie, it's somebody else's movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait a minute, we weren't the heroes, we're the villains, oh man. And yeah, it happened so quickly, and I think you're right to use that phrase, they took the, took the air out of the building, took the wind out of everybody's sails, just, that was it, and it was... It was LeBron at his best. You know, my post-game column, I kind of relied on a quote that was in uh, in the St. Vincent St. Mary High School locker room. I went to visit that during the finals, and it was about discipline and basically like what's involved in in exercising good discipline. 
and I thought that basically all the aspects of the quote that are that, that were in that, you know, in terms of consistency, you know, making excellence play, being responsible, uh, being timely, like all of those things, LeBron brought to the forefront in that exact play, and it was sort of like you could see a lifetime of work paying off uh, with that highlight. Yeah, there was a lot in that, and also I, I was really intrigued by. Kyrie Irving, because uh, I was I was in the Cleveland locker room for a lot of the post game stuff, but I I happened to be in the in the interview room when Kyrie was talking, and how somebody somebody asked him about you know like what he was thinking about when he made the shot, and he said I had to get back on defense, and that is something that was true about it was that a lot of the biggest plays in that game, including also Stephen Curry's crazy block on Jr. on Jr. Smith, a lot of the craziest plays in that game happened without a stoppage immediately after it. And I think that was part of what made that game so much fun to be at and to watch. I'm sure it was the same on TV when I rewatched parts of it. While it was incredibly stressful, was that it wasn't bogged down in intentional fouls. It wasn't bogged down in timeouts or anything like that. Partially, it was benefited because both teams were kind of low on timeouts for the whole fourth quarter. And I think each team had two with like five or six minutes to go, and they just weren't going to call them. And so... Kyrie had that, and so I, I, I thought it was interesting. So I asked him if he had the chance to take a mental picture of that moment that every single person who plays basketball dreams of as a kid of hitting the game-winning shot in the finals. And he said no, but that it would come with time. You know, you just said that he had he thought about trying to get back on defense. If that's not a sign of maturity from Kyrie Irving, I don't know what is. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it, maybe not guy, to get back and play good defense, but yeah. at least the, the idea to come back. <laughs> Yeah, no, like that is that's a serious step forward for him from where he was a couple years ago, or maybe even a, you know last year at this time. I mean, he had some flashes, I guess, in the finals. But yeah, no, it, that shot was crazy. Of all the things that happened in the finals, that seemed to me the least predictable. When he put that up, I didn't think that was in at all. And actually, the next shot when Steph put his up, I also I thought for sure Steph was going to miss just because he'd been off and just didn't have it really that game or you know throughout a lot of the series. But Kyrie's shot, it just seemed sort of like a miracle, like. I mean, that's when you start to believe in stuff like destiny and fate and all these things when, he, when he's hitting a shot like that. That's that's true. The only thing that goes the other way for me, and I think we for, for me covering all seven games of this series, was that I've seen him do so many ridiculous things. I mean, the one that is getting lost in the shuffle a little bit was that insane layup he made over Draymond Green that hit just like hit a couple inches below the top of the backboard. Like he, But he does that all the time. Like, the reason why... Kyrie Irving is a special NBA player is not because he can run an offense at a high level. It is that he is capable of taking and making absolutely insane shots from anywhere. It's not like, like it's different than Steph because Steph can, he has the range to do it. And of course he's gotten a lot better finishing at the rim with Kyrie. It's just kind of like if you push the shoot button at any point, it could go in. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it's not a shot that I'm surprised he made. It's just sort of like a moment that I'm surprised he delivered in, if that makes sense. I just never, I never quite envisioned Kyrie. I saw him as like, you know, he's in the top five to 10 point guards in the NBA, right? I did not see him making the leap before our eyes to outplay Steph in games five and game seven at Oracle. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't see that happening. And yes, you know, we got to give Steph the benefit of the doubt with the health, but I mean, you know, even he was on the court, he was playing fairly big minutes. He was taking a lot of the same shots that he takes. He definitely wasn't getting to the basket like we're used to seeing. But to have Kyrie do it and kind of do it in his face and have that be a sort of a title-winning shot where, like, Ty Lue breaks down in tears afterwards and then tells the reporters during the press conference, like, that's got to be one of the greatest shots in NBA history. Like, there was no way in heck I thought that was going to happen a week or even a day before it took place. You know what I mean? 
and his performance was so different from game one of the 2015 finals, which I thought was one of the one of the more impressive Kyrie Irving games because his defense was great. And that game, yeah. that game lingered with me for a long time. It still does because that was the best defense Kyrie Irving has ever played. And so you kind of think, <laughs> okay, that's a new thing we need to incorporate into his ceiling is maybe he's not going to suck defensively. Maybe that's going to be a part of him moving forward. And instead, his defense wasn't terrible. You know, it was fine. And he did a good job. He, he had a couple of decent possessions on stage. You know, he had, he had moments. But it was his shot making. It was the same thing that brought him to the dance that he continued and thrived in, particularly in Game 5. Like, Game 5 was just insane in person because you're just seeing him just these turnaround shots, and a lot of those were very well defended, mostly by Clay Thompson, and he's just draining him. Totally. I mean, he was at his best doing what he does best in the biggest moments, and so you got to give it up to him. And it was kind of did – you, did you chuckle when he said Mamba mentality in the post-game press conference? That kind of got a chuckle out of me because I was thinking, did Kobe ever hit a shot in the finals as big as that in his entire career? No, he hit he hit a couple oh he hit a couple big shots in the conference finals and then didn't he have that one big finals game after Shaq fouled out? I think that was a that was an NBA finals game from what I remember. Nate Nate would know and Kevin Pelt would know too. I think that he might have had one, but not anything necessarily like that. And I don't remember him having a game like Kyrie's game five where it's just like, Okay, whatever you're gonna whatever you do is gonna do that. And I think part of the reason for that also, and that's something to appreciate about Kyrie, is that his big moments now are pre-prime, whereas Kobe's solo Mamba mentality stuff was a little bit more like where LeBron is now, where it was slightly post-prime. And I think that you, you talked about the idea of LeBron and his statement as the best player in the league. Part of why it really affected me emotionally, like he's not at his athletic peak. I think that, that anybody who, say, who says that this is like a throwback game or anything is denigrating how comic book insane he was at that time totally. but it was more impressive to me because he pulled just enough of that plus his current wiliness and everything else to make it work and it made me think about how he could be that guy who just pulls his fastball out just in the last round and a half of the playoffs and he maybe he does that for the next four or five years well for sure i can kind of go both ways too because i could see nick year being like a 48 win year for the Cavaliers where they just like super ease into the season and LeBron takes like a month off like I could see it going kind of bad and then uh you know them kind of ramping up just for the playoffs because they've got nothing left to prove now right but I think on the on the positive side that's kind of what I'm a little bit worried about is like we're gonna have to sit here and spend three months saying oh are the Cavs did they fall off a cliff did they get too fat and happy after after the title because they take it so easy next year I'm already sort of preemptively worried about those conversations but I think on the positive side of we know that LeBron's got a lot of really 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 good basketball left and he's going to be able to age very gracefully I mean the stress over his shooting I totally get but the fact that he's still able to kind of get to elite level defense the fact that his playmaking uh, when he was completely locked in especially in game six which I thought was just an unbelievable playmaking game from him the fact that he can still get there you know elite level playmaking you know league best type playmaking uh, at this stage of his career, tells me that we've got a lot more years of LeBron to enjoy it. And that's good, because I don't really see a lot else in the Eastern Conference. So, like, the longer that LeBron can sustain, you know, this post-prime or whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, the better. I also do wonder, though, like, will there be positive or negative repercussions from Kyrie from this final experience? Because, number one, he's got no reason to answer to anybody else basically ever again, right? Like, when you make a shot like that, you can basically take any shot you want for the rest of your career. Who's going to tell you no, right? And so does Kyrie 
does he keep drawing within the lines, right? Can he still play within the team context, or does he start freelancing a little bit too much? Or is this the kind of thing that vaults him where he has the self-confidence now, where he, he believes he can kind of become the best point guard in the league, and does he start to go on that kind of a trajectory where he becomes even more motivated by this success? I mean, that's kind of what I'm hoping for, because he's got so much, uh, you know, just God-given ability and, and honed skills that it would be nice to see it go that way. I do just kind of worry any time I'm a gunner, and I do think he's kind of a gunner, Anytime a gunner, you know, makes one in that moment, you know, I always just kind of like cringe. Like, uh oh, are we going to start getting, uh, you know, like eight for thirty-six shooting performances from him down the road? I think we might. And what makes the Cavs really different? There are a couple things. One is that I think LeBron, especially now, knows that he only needs to bring this defense when they're really challenged. So he can save his energy on that end. Like Nate and I had had criticized him. Like some people said, oh, he should have been on the all-defense teams. No, he should not have been on the all-defense teams this year during the regular season. He was spectacular in the finals and had some really nice moments in the Toronto series. Though I don't think he even took them seriously, and he didn't have to. You know, they they weren't they weren't good enough, and the, the, the Cavs could could handle them when they were at full strength or close to it. So if LeBron can be, he's he to me he's bar none the best passer in the league. So if you want to think about LeBron in the regular season as kind of like Ricky Rubio, but a better scorer and a different defender, and then in the playoffs he becomes what we saw this year or close to it, you know, reasonable facsimile, that's enough for them. And if especially if the Eastern Conference stays, like, shaky, you know, stays with teams that aren't really going to threaten them, then he can do that for a couple more years without any sort of consequence. And why that ties in with Kyrie is that, if LeBron disengages a little bit more in the in the regular season, which I fully expect, then that opens things up for Kyrie, and if they keep him, it opens things up for Kevin Love. Totally. Uh, I think that if there was another type of validation for LeBron from this finals, it was his whole idea that he always makes the right basketball play and that he doesn't have to be the takeover guy like Jordan and then taking takeover guy like uh, Kobe. I mean, that's always been an open debate. There's been lots of times during his career where I thought LeBron should maybe do a little bit more, especially late in games, you know, especially in playoff games. Uh, not always, but there's just been times where I kind of thought that. But his ability to take a step back in Game 5 and say, Kyrie, take us home, to trust his teammate, to have the leadership ability to realize that he didn't have to do it, which is a very sophisticated and nuanced version of leadership was incredible. And I think that is a great sign, like you're saying, going forward, when you're trying to balance guys like Kyrie and Kevin Love who need touches, need shots, want to stay happy, and potentially could suffer from that, you know, that quote-unquote disease of more that people are always talking about. From, um, from LeBron James's apparently favorite person. Yeah, Pat Riley, right. So, I mean, you know, being in that situation where he could say, look, I don't need to have 25 every game during the regular season. Like, you know, he could probably go down to 20 or 19, 18, you know, over these next couple of years, and it's not really going to hurt his feelings. He has nothing left to prove. Uh, to have that kind of approach to the game, he had it validated with this title, you know, and so he can now hold that up against everybody and say, look, you know, my way worked. Yeah. I hadn't thought of this until you until what you just said, but I think this makes it a lot less likely that LeBron ever wins another regular season MVP. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And, and part of it too, though, is man, there's a lot of young talent in the NBA. I mean, there's a lot of guys. Like, here's another thing too: is like when you start, you know, forecasting like title favorites for next year, uh, and everybody's always wanting to say, well, Warriors, they're going to come back 
with a vengeance, and totally, like, they're there. But, man, like, the Thunder, like, where are they going? You know, if they bring Kevin Durant back, they're not going anywhere, and those guys are going to be hyper-motivated. I could see Durant or Westbrook win an MVP next year. You know, I probably would vote for Durant, in you know, in general, but, I mean, both those guys are going to be most likely top five candidates. So, you know, Ka- Kawhi is going to be in this conversation. Anthony Davis could always, you know, bust back in this conversation. Towns isn't too far down the road, uh, depending on how, how Minnesota develops. So it's not that, like, the window is totally closed on LeBron, but if he's not going to, you know, if he's going to be playing 65 games a year, or if he's going to be playing 75 but only going like 90, percent it's going to be very, very hard for him to win the MVP given that crop of, uh, you know, other guys. So I, this isn't really an off-season point, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot for the last four weeks, and haven't said publicly at all, is that I think the Spurs' chances of winning another championship in the near term are very low, and the reason for that is that I don't think they can replace. Tim and Manu whenever they choose to go, and I think that Father Time is getting real close as well to making the decision for him. It hurts me to agree with you, because you know how much I love the Spurs and everything they're about, Uh, but I think that their ship sailed with this group this year, and I think if Duncan does come back, it's going to be sort of like, it's going to be one of those one more for the road type of years, you know, where it's just sort of like soak it all up. It's not going to be a serious contention type of year if he's going to be playing a meaningful role i just don't think he quite has that gear anymore and when you and and when you're assessing what you're you're saying okay well can they win a title sort of without him the main question is is Kawhi and lamarcus a better foundational core than lebron Kyrie, or steph clay draymond or westbrook durant ibaka uh, or adams if you want to throw him in instead and I just don't see how that answer is ever going to favor the Spurs. You know, I love Kawhi as much as anybody, but he's definitely third to me behind LeBron and uh, Durant at his own position. And you look at Aldridge and sort of you know, how effective can he be over the course of series if if teams can, re- you know, if elite defenses can prepare for him. Uh, and I, I get a little bit nervous there too. So you know, just starting with their core, I already have questions, and now you've got you know other things like Tony falling off a little bit. Uh, you know, Corey Joseph now he's in Toronto. Uh, some of these other guys who have sort of been big guy, you know, contributors for them just aren't even around anymore. Uh, Danny Green not being the same guy he was in 2013, 2014. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions around the Spurs. For being a team that just won 67 games, they have a ton of questions going forward. And so I actually picked the Spurs to win this title the past year just because I didn't want to pick the Warriors because I thought it was too boring. Uh, but I won't be picking the Spurs in 2017. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And for me... It's in order to be an elite championship, maybe this is just my old school thing, is there are three things that I always really look for. One is a primary ball handler, so someone who could run the offense. That does not need to be a point guard. It can be LeBron James. It can be James Harden, whoever. It can be some, somebody to run the offense. Then it can be the same person or a different person, but you need a go-to score. Somebody who can, maybe they're not going to get the basket every time, but the, at, at moments they can do that, and they, that's just a part of their game. And then the third one is a defensive linchpin. I, I prefer it to be a center, but I'm not going to knock Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard was the best defensive player in the league this year. And that third one is the only one that I feel totally confident that the Spurs have. And the problem is, if Steven Adams is even close to what he was in, in the series against the Warriors and against the Spurs, he comes close to finishing the third one, and for OKC, one and two are easy. Like that, They, they, they might have too many of one and two. 
And so, and the Warriors, you know, they have plenty of all three. The Cavs can pull it when necessary. That's kind of what LeBron showed. And I thought Tristan Thompson was very impressive overall in this finals for similar reasons. Of He's not going to be the best player on the team, but he's going to have, assuming LeBron doesn't leave, he's going to have plenty of other dudes. So he can be the third or fourth best guy on a great team, no problem. Yeah, the thing with Tristan Thompson is, you know, I never, that I remember, I don't think I criticized his contract at all because I remember watching him in last year's playoffs, and he was just a rock for them during last year's playoffs. And when you looked at, like, their most important pieces or why they were able to survive that Kevin Love injury for as long as they did, I mean, he was right there at the top of the list, and it didn't seem really fluky, you know? Like, it seemed like he was coming by his success genuinely. So to see him do it again this year, I don't know if people were surprised by that. If they were... I mean, they weren't paying attention last year because I thought he just did a lot of the same things he did last year, but better. And, you know, again, in a very high-profile situation, given that they were able to take it to seven games and, and they were doing it against a really successful team. So, uh, you know, I like their core a lot. I like the Thunder's core a lot. You know, I'm, I'm almost tempted to make the Thunder my early title favorite for next year, given how close they were in the Western Conference Finals, given how many things kind of went wrong simultaneously for them, the motivation factor of them realizing they blew it much like the Warriors blew the uh, uh, blew the finals. You know, I think that's going to have them coming back. And then just you know, Durant and Westbrook, one year older, uh, you know, one more year closer to their prime, one more year of experience. You know, I think having you know Donovan having a year, a full year under his belt, knowing how to manage a season, you know, potentially putting them in a, a better situation where they can have more regular season wins, so they're not on the road. Uh, you know, depending on the matchups, I don't know. I like the Thunder a lot as an early favorite, assuming they bring Katie back. Yeah, assuming they bring Durant back, the one issue for them is just that I feel like any inj- any single injury to their top four sinks them a lot. Like I'm more so than the Warriors, just because the Warriors have the team concept. Of course, we don't know. Golden State might be a lot less less deep than they were this year, which was something they were able to withstand. We don't know what their philosophy to the off season is going to be. And my instinct, and it has been this way since day one, despite the pieces that I wrote. Is, has always been that Durant was going to come back to Oklahoma City with a 1-plus-1, one one, meaning one year and then a player option, because it just makes total sense. I mean, the only reason to me that he would do anything different than that is if the call of the Warriors was so great, but how close that series was, I think that he wouldn't be able to live with himself, and now there's the possibility, especially because of the rising cap, that he could go to the Warriors in 2017 if he wants to. You know, like he doesn't have to, he gets the chance to make that decision. I have two. Uh, they might be hot takes. I don't know about if they're hot or not. You can tell me. My number one hot take is I just don't think he wants to play with Steph. You know, I, just I watching the press conferences. Too. I think watching the press conferences, how he kind of took digs at Steph multiple times over the course of the uh, series, and you know, just his own, just the way that he carried himself and conducted himself on the court with relation to Steph. I think he looks at Steph as a target, just much like LeBron looked at Steph as a target. You know, a guy that he could knock off, uh, a rival. Um, rather than, you know, this sort of magnet that he wants to go play with. And I definitely don't think that KD is wired the type to go, you know, team up on somebody else's team. I think mean, that's a really, really tough sell for a guy like KD. Um, you know, and then you can throw all the sneaker politics and all that stuff into it, too. So that's my that's my one hot take is I just don't think KD wants to play with Steph. We'll see if I'm proven wrong. I don't think I will be. My other hot take is I think the second most likely outcome besides the one plus one that you mentioned is actually Kevin Durant signing a long-term deal this summer to just lock up with Oklahoma City. I would actually put that as a more likely second scenario than him signing with anybody else. Part of that is just a gut feel based on how he is beloved in Oklahoma City. Part of that is a gut feel based on the moves they've made to kind of get 
the pieces of a contending team around him and the fact that there aren't really a lot of other, you know, quote unquote, better situations. And part of it is just the idea that the certainty factor. I mean, when you're coming off three foot surgeries, you're generally happy. You're in position to be a contender for the foreseeable future. You like being in Oklahoma where you're sort of this local icon. You're in the state hall of fame. Everybody loves you. You're the favorite son. And you have that revenge factor that you mentioned about getting so close and kind of wanting to overcome it. I think all those things combined put him in a situation where just locking up and leaving some money on the table just for the kind of peace of mind and knowing that you're going to be there is not the worst backup plan. So I think if I had to wager it, I would say the one plus one, I'm with you. That's kind of what I thought was going to be the most likely scenario going back to last fall. But I think the second most likely scenario now is that he just says, you know what, I'm happy here. Give me the four-year deal. Give me the five-year deal, whatever it might be. I've got enough money. I don't need to squeeze every single penny. Now I'm locked in. I can make the case to try to keep Westbrook here going forward. And you know, the team is you know, ready to roll through it, the rest of its championship window. What I have had trouble reconciling there is that I think it, that is such a bad decision for him with the <laughs> yeah. idea that that might not matter. And the direct parallel is somebody we've talked a little bit about in this and we'll probably talk about more, which is Kevin Love. I thought Kevin Love made a bad decision going for the security. In a couple different ways, he probably made the right decision. But it's justifiable because you get that security. He seems like he's happy where he is. And while I, you know, if, if I were Kevin Durant, that is not the decision I would make. But partially because the financial part, because he can make so much more money per season if he waits another year. And someone will offer him that contract. And just because if he's interested in leaving every other team is you're going to have a lot more information i mean who knows maybe at this point next year while i don't think either of us is super high on their talent maybe the lakers young guys all of a sudden look awesome under luke walton you know like maybe maybe that's a different kind of move maybe the wizards do something small but important in terms of just maybe doing some sort of upgrade maybe at center or something like that that looks better the knicks will be a much clarified future whatever that is and so that buys him that time, and also from the PR perspective, which I'm sure is something he thinks about, whether it's the priority or not, I'm, I'm skeptical, is that if he thinks that Russ or Ibaka is going to leave, first of all, if either of them leaves, they are not a championship contender anymore, full stop. Second, he's not the bad guy for leaving in that case. It, I mean, he will be in Oklahoma City, but he won't be around the league because everybody would know that they wouldn't have a chance. Yeah, you know, I wonder about the Ibaka factor, you know, just because of the emergence of Adams and the idea that if he's, you know, if he's your go-to center and you can play him late in games as your backline guy, is Ibaka more expendable than we thought he was, you know, a year ago or especially compared to like two or three years ago? You know, I, I start to wonder exactly how crucial you know, is Ibaka in their equation. But yeah, I still think that the, I mean, the best combination of everything where like, you know, you continue to have the chance to win, you get a lot of money, you give yourself the, the max earning potential, and you keep your flexibility with everything is the one plus one deal. And that's why I think we keep coming back to that. I just think the way he's wired in terms of how important loyalty is to him uh, and how well things actually are kind of set up in Oklahoma City. You know, it's not as good as LeBron where he's, like, leveraging all these moves out of Dan Gilbert. I mean, LeBron's the only guy who's the franchise of the franchise player, right? But Durant is treated very, very, very well in Oklahoma City. And, you know, he's got relationships there that go back, you know, almost a decade at this point. So I think that those are the kinds of things that we tend to maybe undervalue when we're looking at it from sort of a very rational, financial type of perspective that maybe someone in his situation would put more value on than we would think. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that that is fair, and the emotionality of it is incredibly important, and I, I agree with you. What I was saying about having the, the difficulty reconciling it is the idea that it is more likely than I think it should be, but I certainly think it's a, it, it is a reasonable possibility. There is an argument for the Wizards as well. I don't see it as particularly likely, but there is a possibility just because you don't have the issue with Steph where, is, oh, is this Kevin Durant's team? Even As great as John Wall has been, it's Kevin Durant's team if he goes to Washington. But he doesn't have to do, again, he doesn't have to do that this year, depending on how Washington spends their money. That could happen next year as well. So you obviously have a lot more to do, but something, while we're not focusing as much on the offseason yet, this isn't going to be about what you think will happen. What I want to know is one move that you would really love to see, so it can be any player, let's say any player signing anywhere, if you have a trade in mind, I'm happy to hear that, and one move that you really don't want to see. Well, let me see here. That's a good question. Let me hear yours first. Well, you give me a second to think. I'm sorry. I'm still in uh, finals finals, uh, hangover mode. So the move that I do not want to see is DeRozan going to the Lakers. (laughs) <laughs> and the reason for that is that I guess maybe it's growing up as in in California and just seeing the Lakers be good basically my entire life is that I feel like things will always work out for them eventually, maybe not immediately. And DeRozan just flies in the face of that. Even if he takes a discount, it just flies in the face of that. And in, in terms of a move that I really want to see happen, I, I think that what it would probably be is something like Al Horford going, maybe going to Boston somewhere that is a little bit more competitive and that that could be a fit. Like, it's not going to be Durant going to the Warriors, though that would, for selfish reasons, would be, for, for many selfish reasons, would be the best for me. But I think Horford going there would be really interesting. And then the other one for me, which isn't a specific move, but is a concept, is Minnesota having a good offseason. Because let's say they can get, I, I really like Dragon Bender for their team or whatever they do, because I feel like Carl Anthony Towns is, is what's next. Of this of guys who are on rookie contract right now, I think he's the guy right now. And so part of what I always think about, and this is how I was with LeBron the whole first time he was in Cleveland, is how are they going to do it around this guy? Yeah, well, here's the one that I would like to see. I'm going to stick with the Blazers. I want to see them get a center, just because we saw Plumlee get sort of exposed you know, against the Warriors pretty badly. I mean, yes, he had a tough series, but I think even if he was sort of playing his quote-unquote best, that'd be tricky. So then it becomes this, this game of, like, which center do you want to give them? I mean, Dwight Howard. Hassan Whiteside. Hassan Whiteside, Bismack, Biombo. Those are some of the sort of the dream targets for the Blazers. And the Blazers never get anybody in free agency. Uh, so then you have to start wondering, like, would they try to go back after a guy like Greg Monroe they've been, you know, linked to? I think that would actually be a bad move. I don't want to see them do that. I just think he has the potential to kind of screw up the way their offense works by needing the ball too much. So maybe I'm just going to say, I'm just going to swing for the fence. It's like, I think the Blazers need Dwight Howard. I know that sounds crazy. It's not necessarily the move I want to see because I think it's going to lead to the best outcome. I just think it might be the most interesting pairing between team need and player need. Like, Dwight needs a refresh. He needs a new locker room. He needs a new situation. The Blazers, you know, really need to have a better defensive presence in the middle. Their offense is basically figured out. Dwight would almost be, I don't, I don't know, not really the Andrew Bogut mold because they use him quite a bit on offense, and he's not really a playmaker, but almost that defensive-minded center who doesn't really get the ball a lot. That would be the role for him in Portland. I let the guards just shoot, you know, go nuts. 
and, and Dwight would kind of get his offense, you know, second chance points and so forth. You get a lot of blocks and rebounds too. His counting stats would go up just because they had they play a little bit of a weak, let's say, weak perimeter defense. <laughs> yeah, he'd be uh, he'd be kept busy. Let's put it that way. So I guess maybe that's what I want to see, just more for I don't know if it's the fun factor or just the intrigue, because I think that would add a little bit. You know, this Warriors Blazers potential rivalry is is there. So if you're looking at like where can you place Dwight to kind of keep him in the mix in the Western Conference of teams that are going to be playoff teams, Portland's like the one that has the most cap space and the biggest need at that position. So I, maybe I'll go with that one. Uh, in terms of the move that I don't want to see, you know, that DeRozan one's great because I'd have to go watch the Lakers 41 times next year. So I am not super eager. Uh, you know, it's you, not super you, you excited. Can say, you could say the Clippers signing Jeff Green for $18 million a year. Oh, yeah. Well, the Clippers, basically any move about the Clippers I'm already dreading because, you know, there's going to be Austin and there's going to be, what do they do with Crawford? So, there, I mean, there's a, a bunch of potential moves there. How, uh, how about you phrase it in the negative? And would, okay, I'll phrase it a different way. Would you want to see, while it seems weird that it would happen now, a banana boat reunion? Well, yeah, I don't see that happening anymore. That was one of our fun dream scenarios that I think got torpedoed by Cleveland's miraculous run through the, the playoffs. Another you know, reason I, Draymond Green is a villain. He ruined the banana boat. <laughs> well, what about this one? I mean, the thing with the Lakers, their free agency plans is like, it just seems like it's going to end in disaster no matter what. Like, So let's say DeRozan doesn't take their money. Let's say he stays in Toronto. Is their backup plan really going to be Harrison Barnes and Festus Azili? Like, is that the is that their backup plan where Luke just tries to poach whoever he can the the Maurice Spates future Lakers Snapchat? And if they do that, that's terrible. Yeah. It, so right? I, so when I did the offseason preview for the Sporting News, which came out this week, one of the central tenets of it for me was the idea of them waiting another year, and it has the it also has the benefit of potentially alleviating their first-round obligation to Orlando from the Dwight Howard trade, because they actually just still have that if they lose their pick this year, then they owe Orlando a, a pick in 2018, or 2019, sorry. And that changes. If they keep their pick for another year, they do that. So I think that ideally what they would do if they miss out on whoever their top guys are, and for me that would be more like somebody like Whiteside, just because there aren't really rim protectors on next year's market, and they're, they're not going to get a rim protector at number two this year. If they don't, let's say, get whoever that target is, I would love to see them go after somebody like Greg Monroe or go after somebody who who is just good enough to win the PR battle, but not good enough to make them good. But they won't do that. There's like yeah. no chance. No, that, like if I were, to, if it's I were, far too logical. Far like, too logical. Like if I were to bet on a team to just go straight, like emotion, straight id, whatever. I would actually almost lean towards the Lakers over the Clippers. The only reason that I wouldn't is because Doc is the coach and the GM and the president. No, I feel you. I thought of another one. Uh, this is a little bit maybe outside the box, but a move I don't want to see is Mike Conley re-sign in Memphis. I agree with you. I agree with you, and I got some crap for it, but I, I think that that consigns Memphis to kind of irrelevance, and I think both the team and Gasol and Conley deserve better. Exactly. I think especially Conley, because that guy is really, really freaking good. And I think if you put him in the right situation uh, on a team that's sort of on the upswing, that just needs that stable point guard, like every time we do this, Danny, we're always going back to like, imagine if the Jazz had a point guard. Well, imagine if the Jazz had Mike Conley. Like they would be unreal, you know, and that would be such a better situation for him and for them than what Memphis is going to be here in the next, you know, three, four, five years. Now, is he ever even going to give them a look? Probably not. But. Yeah, I, I don't really see where Memphis is going. I like the idea they tried to get out in front of the rebuild a little bit and you know stockpile draft picks with some of those preemptive trades. But you know, to me, 
the era is basically done. Um, you know, even if Mark comes back 100%, I just don't see the ceiling with them. And so, you know, and, and from everything that it sounds like, you know, Mike Conley is like the most loyal guy in the world. So he's almost in a KD situation in, in Oklahoma City where they have just this crazy incumbent advantage. But if there was any of sort of the A-list free agents that I could say, like, please go to a different team, uh, I think it would be Mike Conley. Yeah, for me it'd be Conley, and also I have this sneaking suspicion with the Hawks that, because something that people don't remember with them, that's why I said Horford to the Celtics, is other than Horford if he resigns, their entire team will be free agents next year. And basically all of them are going to want raises, and so that's just going to end badly somehow. You know, it could end badly with a bunch of guys leaving, it could end badly with a bunch of guys staying on bad contracts. And I think Horford and Conley, both those guys, deserve better than to spend their early 30s on teams that aren't relevant. Has there been any buzz about Horford to the Spurs? Uh, there has been buzz in my mentions because I, I've written about how the Spurs could get like Durant, and so some people are like, oh, well, they could do that to get Horford. And that that is an interesting possibility. The problem with all of that, and this actually parallels the Warriors for anybody but Durant, is they would have to give up a lot to do it, like guys like Danny Green. And it's funny because Danny Green is kind of the Spurs Harrison Barnes. So there is this weird parallel where it's like you're giving up a guy who is underrated by your fan base because he's frustrating. <laughs> so you have that. But the problem with the Spurs is that they would also probably, I, I think it would just get dicey in terms of they would have to lose either Tony or Patty Mills, and then you just don't have enough shot creation. So they could do it. Like That's the, the funny thing about the summer is that unless it involves the Cavs or the Clippers, basically anything can happen. But it would it would be very unspursy. The other way to do it would be to dump Marcus Aldridge, but there's I don't think there's any chance that happens. So, yes, it is possible, but I don't think it's likely. Yeah, and that would just be a really interesting pairing with Horford. God, the East would get so much worse, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, it would be really bad. And it would just make the West that much more interesting because you'd have this crazy stylistic clash between Spurs and Thunder and Golden State where it's like like rock, paper, scissors in terms of styles. The crazy Horford Horford place for me is Minnesota because then he doesn't have to play center anymore, which apparently he doesn't like. Oh, God. Yeah, that, well, that would be a very similar thing except that, you know, Towns has a higher ceiling than Aldridge. But, I mean, same same idea. Does he have to fight Joakim Noah to get over there, though? I feel like Noah's not going to end up there unless KG retires, just because that's too many people. And from what I recall, those two guys don't like each other very much, and if KG doesn't retire, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, I don't see KG going anywhere, but he doesn't even really play. You know, like He's like the most expensive assistant coach in the league at this point. I wonder if they could kind of find a way to make it work by saying, hey, Noah, you get to have all the minutes, and KG will just sort of be here. Who knows? What, what, uh, I just think that Thibodeau is going to be... He's, He's just gonna be going after all of his old Dang. Yeah. guys. You know, I just feel like that's like the. Yeah. What's crazy to me, and I think was, and we can end with this thought, even though I'm gonna do more podcasts before the off season, is for guys, especially the old Bulls guys, and it's it's funny that it is those players, Noah, Dang, that what they choose in terms of winning, in terms of years or dollars, is going to be incredibly important. Because while those guys are not the Durants and and the LeBrons who are going to shape the title picture, they could loom really large if they choose something specific. And I have absolutely no idea because those guys in particular have a lot of miles in their tires. So if they want to use this as their last time to just get paid by like Orlando, I'm never going to blame them for that. But if they want to take another bite at the winning apple, some people have tried to put Noah on the Warriors. You know, Dan could go seemingly anywhere if he wanted to for the right price. And so what those guy, kind of guys choose to do with their 
free agency this year is going to be really important. For sure. Yeah, no, and I mean, having another guy where it's like, an, you know, you have this wild card. Like, when I remember when Stan Van Gundy got hired by the Pistons, it was like, oh, all of a sudden, that's a wild card who you have to kind of, like, keep in the back of your mind, like, oh, this is a new level of sophistication with their decision-making, and they're going to actually have, like, a pretty cohesive plan and maybe some connections where you're going to be able to pull guys into that position that didn't exist previously. And now it's sort of the same thing with Minnesota where, you know, your hopes for them having a big offseason, like, I'm kind of with you on that. And I actually think that, like, one way or another, they're going to make a splash. Like, Tibbs isn't going to go down quietly his first summer, you know. And so that, you know, that makes them definitely a team to. Yeah, watch. I just hope that, I just hope they don't mess it up because if they put long term money in, like next year, <laughs> so next year if they could get out of Pekovic somehow, like they could have max money, and that's when they would have sold a free agent because, like, right now they they would be getting them by overpaying them. You're not really getting the buy in, but if they have a really good year then they could be kind of one of those perfect storm teams. And I'm not saying they would get, you know, Russell Westbrook or Curry or Duran or something, but if they can get somebody from the next tier down to add to that team, and then they'd probably still have another decent draft pick, like, that is how really good, like, that's kind of how the Warriors happened, was they struggled a little bit right before they got good, and then that's part of what helps set the table for everything. Yeah, you mean the, the Harrison Barnes tank is what you're referring to? The active tank for Harrison Barnes, but the only reason that tank happened is because they stumbled before it and made the tank possible. Oh, for sure. Well, that Pekovich contract is one of the like least discussed absolute disasters in the NBA. That's one where you're lucky you're in Minnesota when when that deal's playing out because if you're like you know, imagine, remember how much crap the Lakers got with the Steve Nash situation, like how that was just like a national story for months on end, and he's like posting all these websites and videos sort of defending his decision not to medically retire and all that stuff and how he just wanted to keep his money. Like, imagine if Pekovic was a Laker, you know, playing out that deal for that for that price point, giving you absolutely nothing. Year after year, he gets his shot blocked more than he gets blocks. Uh, I mean, that would be unending criticism for the front office. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, we ended on the note of the underrated absolute disaster. That's a good place to stop. Absolutely. Thanks, Danny. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at Sports Illustrated, which is si.com, as well as, of course, the magazine. And you can also follow him on Twitter at B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on and his perspective on the finals. It was It was great to get to talk to him during the finals as well. And as you may have noted... We recorded this on Tuesday night, so that was before the two trades that happened on Wednesday, both of which I will have extended thoughts about on Dunked On, which we're going to do a podcast. This is coming out on Wednesday. We will have one that comes out on Wednesday about that. And uh, depending on, on what I do in terms of the rest of this week, we'll probably have some discussions of it on Real Jam Radio as well. I am hoping to do two more Real Jam Radio episodes before free agency starts uh one will be about the draft and the other i, I want to do one more off-season preview and it looks like both those are going to happen and for those of you who've listened to this before you know that i don't i don't say my guests before we record because i don't want to get people's hopes up and then have them be dashed because i just think that's mean so i am really looking forward to it though i am very excited and when i'm excited that's a good sign as always your feedback is greatly appreciated you can reach out to me on twitter at daniel larue D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email NBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I am exceedingly busy, seemingly forever, though that will lighten up after Vegas probably. But, you know, things are things are good, so I can't, I can't really complain about that. And 
I also appreciate it if anybody with this podcast and any other one you listen to, especially the ones I'm involved in, if you download every episode, rate and review it if you like it, and tell your friends, whether they be e-friends or real-life friends, to listen, and hopefully they like it as well. Because building an audience takes a lot of time, and you know I, I'm really proud of the products that I put out. This one, this is my baby, so I, I'm particularly proud of this, but of course, Dunked On is wonderful as well. And so, if you enjoy it and want to share it with others, that is one way that we can build an audience and, you know, get sponsors and things like that, and that helps keep it on the air, and, you know, who, know, who knows what happens beyond that, but very excited with with where things are going, and and we'll definitely see, and while a lot of people and things are considered the NBA Finals the end of it, that is not the way that it is for me or for this podcast. July is very, very big, and with the Olympics in August, there's really not going to be much downtime. Real Jam Radio will go strong. It will go strong once a week. Maybe not. It's not rigid like every X day or whatever, but it, there will be one episode per week at, in, until I stop doing this, which hopefully is years and years and years from now. So it will keep going throughout the summer. I haven't decided yet, but I'm probably going to bring back the division by division podcasts. I really enjoy doing them, and and they're a lot of fun. And it that balances out the kind of the the time constraint because six weeks, six episodes of that between. August and October is about right in terms of that, because then you can hit the other big stories, including the Olympics that will come. So that is enough monologuing. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.